Please be seated. Oh. He, took my, he took my cue, didn't he? So, anyway, good evening. Good to see you. Jeremiah chapter 1 tonight. Begin a new book of the Bible. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you might be fairly lost without one this evening. And so men are coming up the aisles now with Bibles, just waving at their attention. They'll put it in your hands, and it'll be marked to where we're studying this evening. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. The book of Jeremiah is named after uh, the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah, and uh, he ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah in about the 7th century uh, B.C. The historical kind of aspects to help us get our bearings a little bit before we get into his actual call and then also into the actual prophecies that God called him to prophesy. Uh, he ministered about 60 years after the end of Isaiah's ministry, and that was about 100 years following uh, the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians, and so it gives you an idea, 100 years prior uh, to Jeremiah's prophecy to Judah, and he's warning them that what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel is going to happen to you if you don't change from the direction that they had taken. And that was near in their history, just about a hundred years uh, earlier. The northern kingdom of Israel would have never fallen to the Assyrians except for the cause of, uh, you know, what got to them and was their sin and their rebellion against God. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies at a time where a world-ruling empire known as the Assyrians were dominating not only their part of the world but all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, again, they had conquered the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. They're right. There's a kind of a, you know, we look at our world today and we see how much of, um, uh, you know, uncertainty there is. Uh, where there, are, there are so many wars going on in the world today. We don't know where power is going to land in the Middle East. We don't know about kind of what is Russia doing and flexing its muscles. Are we on a, a downturn in the West? Have we grown, grown too soft to withstand threats and so forth? Well, it's nothing new under the sun. At the time that uh, Jeremiah was beginning his prophecy, this great world-ruling empire in terms of just sheer power known as the Assyrians, they were waning in power. They were still the dominant power, uh, but there was a new kingdom by the name of Babylon that was rising on the horizon, and nobody knew which one would kind of ascend and which one would descend. We know historically that the Babylonians ultimately uh, conquered Assyria in 605 B.C., and then as a new superpower in the world, they would ultimately conquer Judah in 586 B.C. And the southern kingdom of Judah, again, would have never been conquered on the basis of military might or any of these kind of things, no matter how powerful uh, Babylon was. They were conquered and defeated because of their sin, their idolatry, and their wickedness. The man Jeremiah himself is a fascinating study throughout the book. You can actually study the book with just saying, I want to learn about this man, this servant of the Lord, and it would be uh, highly rewarding to do so. He is known as the weeping prophet, and 
Here, uh, it was because of the uniqueness of what God had called him to, which I'll get to in just a moment. But here was a man who delivered the message that God gave him to deliver. It was a very hard message. It was a message of judgment that was coming. And the message that he delivered to the people of Judah, it had very little effect. He was a, so he could see what was coming way before anybody else could see what was coming. Isn't it hard sometimes as a Christian to have our eyes opened up so clearly and we see things more clearly than we ever did before we were Christians and we know about the world, we know about our own nation, that you cannot decline morally and spiritually and over the long term prosper militarily or economically or materially. You just can't do it. Uh, we always rise in these other areas based upon what we are morally and spiritually. So this idea that any one of the candidates in the current election or in any local election can say, I can promise you greater prosperity, greater days ahead for America, and ignore what we are morally and spiritually and the direction that we're going in, they got the cart before the horse. They are promising what can never be delivered because all of these things that we want come out of our morality, they come out of our spirituality. And Jeremiah could see this clearly. And so one of the blessings and one of the curses of being a Christian is we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we see things in a way we never would otherwise. And so uh, it's like the blind eyes have been opened up and we see where things are going to go or we see the trends and and this kind of thing. And sometimes it's a curse to see things as clearly as we do. It can certainly uh, break your heart. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, uh, speaking of the deep emotional price he would pay to deliver God's message, but then also he wept over the nation because of its needless destruction because of sin. It drained him emotionally in order to deliver the message of repentance and judgment to the people. And he lived a very lonely, and he lived a very isolated life as a result. And so sometimes you think about prophets, you think about preachers, or anybody that ministers God's Word, and it looks, looks like they just get up there and kind of do that and then go home. And uh, Jeremiah teaches us uh, that it's different when uh, the best of these kind of people are very connected to their message, connected to the God that they're serving, connected to the audience that they're preaching to. I remember watching uh, a guy teach, a very, very gifted teacher on uh, uh, Christian television, and he is just in a zone. And I mean, it is the Holy Spirit zone while he is teaching. He had that group in that congregation, I mean, in the palm of his hands in terms of just the glory of God. He had me in the same place. And then when he got done uh, with the message, I mean, everybody is just so uh, thankful for it. And he said to them as an aside, he said, all of you will go home blessed, and I will go home to fight the most intense spiritual warfare you can imagine. And that's the way that it is. There's a heart, there's a mind, there's a soul, there's a person uh, that pays a price to stand firm and to stand strong in the way that Jeremiah did against 
uh, all odds. The prophecy of Jeremiah is unusual, I think, in one respect in terms of the prophetic books of the Old Testament in that how much is revealed of the prophet within uh, the book, how much of his thinking, how much of his processing, how much of his emotion, his conversations with God, his prayers with God concerning uh, God and him and the ministry that God had called him to. I think that, uh, for example, if you uh, were to ask people what uh, they like most about the book of Isaiah, invariably I think people would bring up some passage from uh, Isaiah, from the book, one of the messianic prophecies concerning uh, Jesus. And, but when we think about the prophecy of Isaiah, that's what we think about. We think about the message. We think about the context. We don't, uh, the, uh, content. We don't think about Isaiah uh, supremely. The book is all about the message. But when you ask people who are familiar with the book of Jeremiah, what do they think about in terms of Jeremiah? What might be one of their favorite passages of the book of Jeremiah? And they might mention one or two or three from the particular book, but most often they could hardly think of a favorite passage beyond maybe one or two. What they love about the book, what brings them back to the book, what makes this book a favorite for people is they love Jeremiah. They love the picture of Jeremiah. They love what Jeremiah goes through in his walk with God and his service to God, and it encourages them, them. All of his ups and all of his downs and all of the transparency, tremendous transparency in his relationship with God, his prayers to God, and so forth. And when we get done with the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, we feel like we have a friend. We feel like we've come to know Jeremiah and that he has become uh, one of our friends and we can relate to him on some level. And the fact of the matter is, is that we end up liking him a lot. And the book of Jeremiah is remembered for the most part uh, by those familiar with it as much as for Jeremiah as for the message that uh, he delivered. And so it's a tremendous study in uh, a man of God who stood strong for God in a very difficult time in the history of God's people uh, to do that. The message of the book or the theme of the book is repent and uh, turn back to God. And that was the warning that God gives to Judah over and over again all through the 50-plus chapters uh, of the book of Jeremiah. They will never repent. They will never turn <laughs> despite 45 years, 40 to 45 years of his ministry to them. Backsliding is a common theme within the book, and there is this warning over and over again that judgment must come upon unrepented of sin. Here's what somebody said about Jeremiah, and I like it, so I'll read it to you. Jeremiah was Jehovah's spokesman in days of darkness and disaster. That's very good. Uh, he went on elsewhere to say this of, of Jeremiah. Never for a single moment during the 40 or more years of his ministry did Jeremiah ever arrest the downward progress of the people. Never by anything he said, never by anything he suffered, never by anything he did was he able to check that deterioration. And God knew it would be the case. 
He knew he was calling this man to serve for that period of time and that the people would never change. They would never turn, that the nation would go into captivity. And yet, God wanted his word declared to the nation in the middle of all of it. Jeremiah teaches us, I think, how to be faithful to God in the midst of wicked times and hypocritical times. And I think when I spoke this morning to some of you and that it's the reason that you're here tonight, and I said that Jeremiah speaks to us as Christians in this day in a powerful way, is that Jeremiah was called into ministry, called at a time in which he was going to minister and yet at the same time be forced to watch the death of a nation. You and I live in the middle of a nation that is dying. I know you didn't come to church tonight to hear that. But again, when you look at it, apart from the stock market, look away from all of these other things that are judgments or comparing ourselves to Europe or Asia and all of the economic comparisons and so forth, what alarms in the eyes of God is morally and spiritually the trend of our nation and of our world because everything follows that, whether it is to go up or whether it is to go down. And you and I have been called as Christians tonight. We have been called, if our nation does not turn, we have been called to speak for him and to watch the death of a nation. And Jeremiah teaches us, if there is no repentance, if there is no revival that comes to our nation, how we are to conduct ourselves, the influence we're to be within the world that we are in, if God has indeed called us to that prior to uh, the rapture uh, of the church. And this is what his life teaches us and, and uh, uh, instructs us in. The Bible teaches that we reap what we sow, and Judah could not violate that with impunity. They, and they thought that they could. We're God's people. We've got a temple. We're still offering the sacrifices. And somehow that sowing and reaping was something that God would put on the sideline in terms of sowing to the flesh as opposed to sowing uh, to the Spirit, but it didn't, uh, it didn't happen. And what is true of a nation and true of Judah is equally true of the individual. Now we get into uh, the bro uh, book uh, proper here. And in the verse ni first 19 verses of chapter 1, we have God's call of Jeremiah into the ministry and then his commission. In other words, a commission tells him what it is that God has called him to do with his uh, life. And so, in verses 1 through 3, here's the introduction of Jeremiah the prophet. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce to you uh, Jeremiah the prophet, says the Holy Spirit, in effect. The words of Jeremiah, and, and we're told his lineage here, he was the son of Hilkiah of the priests. So, Jeremiah comes from a priestly lineage. The priesthood at this particular point in time in Judah is completely corrupted. They are, they are at the root of the problem. 
and uh, they are not properly teaching the Word, ministering the Word, and so forth. And Jeremiah, uh, coming out of this lineage of the priests, was more aware than anyone else of the corruption of the priests. But it didn't mean all of the priests were corrupt or everyone in Judah was corrupt at that time. You look at the nation that we live in right now in terms of morality. You've got kind of the nation is split 50-50, and uh, you have 50% that looks and says, I don't care who the candidate is or what kind of baggage that they have. If they are for abortion and homosexual uh, marriage and homosexual rights, then I'm going to vote for them. And then you have another half that speaks about a more conservative or biblical morality and so forth. And so when Rome, I mean, they rotted from the inside out, it didn't mean 100% of the population became corrupt and debauched, just a critical mass did, a majority did, that ultimately took everything down. So there were good people in the midst of it, not just uh, Jeremiah, and he comes from a family, a part of the priesthood who was no doubt uh, being faithful. They were from a city in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, and Anathoth was a city that was given to the Levites. We remember it earlier in the Old Testament, the Levites were not given a portion of the land like the other tribes. They were given cities throughout the land, and Anathoth was one of those cities, and it was just really uh, a stone's throw, about three miles northeast of uh, Jerusalem. And and so, this is Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. And so, uh, the Lord now begins to speak to Jeremiah, going to speak through him. Remember, a prophet is one who speaks for God. We think of someone who is a prophet today most often as someone who um, uh, foretells the future. It's not it has that element in the Bible, but it also has a, a, a larger kind of aspect to it of uh, telling forth. And if there happens to be a uh, foretelling element of it, fine. But a prophet is someone who speaks for God, and they are called to speak for God. So everybody in the world's got a voice. The whole world's got a voice, don't they? Well, God has a voice too, but how's He going to communicate that voice and what's on His heart and on His mind? Well, through the Scriptures, but then also through uh, prophets. And so, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah in the thirteenth year of Josiah's reign. Josiah was one of the greatest kings that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. And during his reign, he led the nation in a revival, tremendous revival. But the people were so steeped into idolatry and wickedness and sin, they would obey what Josiah called them to do because he was the king, and it was politically expedient to uh, be into whatever the king was into, and the king is like really into the Bible and God right now. So if you want to get perks from the federal government, then you fall in line. That's the trough that everybody has to line up in. But their hearts weren't changed. Josiah's heart was changed, but by and large, the hearts of the people within the nation, uh, it wasn't changed. So uh, Jeremiah was probably born during the reign of Manasseh, who was one of the worst kings. Uh, people were being murdered on the streets. Children were being offered to uh, sacrifice to idols during his reign. We're talking about Judah. We're talking about the children of God. 
This is what was going on in Judah. He was born into that kind of wickedness. He begins his public ministry now in the midst of the revival of Josiah. And that's the context of the early chapters of uh, the book of Jeremiah. It also, that is, his uh, period of prophecy also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the carrying away uh, of Jerusalem captive in the uh, fifth month. And so, uh, he continued his reign all the way through the reign of uh, Zedekiah and, uh, and until Jerusalem was taken captive by Babylon. It covered, he uh, ministered and prophesied during the reign of five uh, separate kings that are listed here, uh, Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, don't get them mixed up, and uh, Zedekiah. There are two kings that weren't mentioned in the lineage here, uh, Jehoiahaz and Jehoiachin, uh, a different Jehoiachin, and they aren't mentioned probably because of the brevity of their reign. They each ended up reigning for three months uh, uh, in time, or it might be they're not mentioned simply because God did not have Jeremiah prophesy uh, during their reigns. Again, as we know from what's laid out here in terms of the information given to us in verses 2 and 3, his period of ministry covered somewhere between 40 and 45 years. He preaches God's Word for 40 years, and there is no recorded convert to his message. Now, you talk about depressing the lack of fruit. Now, okay, so, all right. Forty years. Six weeks, six months, six years. All right, starting to drag on you a little bit, isn't it? Forty years. He sees no apparent fruit for his ministry. It looks like, God, what are you doing? I'm doing no good at all in what it is that you have called me to do. But that wasn't Jeremiah's problem. Jeremiah's problem was not fruitfulness. That's not our problem either to what God calls us to. Jeremiah's problem was faithfulness. What fruit came out of it, that's between people and God. Remember the thing that we want to one day hear from God is, well done, thou good and fruitful servant. Doesn't say that because outwardly he couldn't say that to Jeremiah. And a lot of people serve God in very obscure parts of the world or in not so obscure parts of the world where to have a convert every few years is a, a, a marvel of God. And, uh, and so, it is well done, thou good and faithful servant of the Lord. This was not an easy thing that God had uh, called him to. Now, this is how God uh, called him, verse 4, and then the word of the Lord came to me, and this is what God said to him. We have no idea how exactly this happened in terms of, uh, you know, the, the clarity with which uh, Jeremiah understood this to be the voice of the Lord and so forth, but the Lord spoke to him and said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible to speak to the origin of human life. It is not at birth. 
it is at conception. And the Lord speaks concerning Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb. He knew Jeremiah, recognized him as a human being, not only at the moment of conception, but even before conception. But that gets a little crazy in our heads, so I'm not going to take it any deeper than that, not without some medication. So, before I formed you in the womb, he knew him even before he was formed or conceived in the womb. It's, I think it's going to be a horrible time in history one day if the Lord tarries and there is repentance in the world. And uh, the book of Judges teaches us that even if the Lord doesn't return uh, soon, that the cycle of evil can only go on so far before ultimately there has to be a rebound out of it. There has to be revival. It's, it's the history of the world, not only the Jews in the book of Judges, but the world itself. And I think that one day if people return to their sanity and look back upon this period of history, uh, modern history from uh, the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court in 1973 in terms of abortion, that, uh, that people will be horrified over it. All of these mind games and word games about uh, that this is only a child when it's uh, born, and even when it's born now, is it viable, and all of these things, all of it is just so much nonsense in the eyes uh, of God, he tells Jeremiah, therefore I formed you, or before I formed you in the womb. He was formed by God. You were formed by God. Well, I'd like to have a little more input into that forming, but anyway, the Bible teaches that you and I are equally formed uh, by God in the womb. And he said to Jeremiah, I knew you. Now, Jeremiah is going to protest God calling him in just a moment. I think we'll get it to it tonight. It's like two verses away. Some of you are saying, oh, there's 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be here 60 years. No, we'll pick it up. But I'm, I only want to get through the first chapter tonight because it's a self-contained uh, chapter. And, um, but he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, you think about that, having God say to Jeremiah what it must have meant to him. I knew you. Jeremiah, I know you. You think you know you. And because you think you know you and you think you're the big expert on you, you're going to try and weasel out on this calling. But you don't know you like I know you. And I know what I'm getting when I'm getting you and I'm getting a project. But that's exactly what I want. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Before Jeremiah was even born, this calling of a prophet was already on his life. The word sanctified means to be set aside unto the work of God, to be set apart unto God. And the same thing that's true again of Jeremiah is true of us. We are sanctified. We come into the world, every single one of us, with a plan of God attached to our lives. Now, can anything be more exciting than that? Now, I'll never enter into that plan unless I become born again. And then once I'm born again, I'll never enter into that plan unless I have a concern to enter into that plan. 
But each of us are sanctified, as he declares here, uh, I, before you were born, I sanctified you. God said to him, I knew then how I wanted and want to spend your life, and the same thing is true of us. I wish I could remember the quote that that man had on that video that we watched from the Voice of the Martyrs that began the whole video. We're all going to die, something like that. We might as well die for Christ. And, uh, and it's true related to our lives. We've been sanctified to the Lord's work. And he says further, a fourth thing, and I ordained you as a prophet uh, to the nations. And so uh, here was this ordination that he had as well. And this is that assurance when he's told, I ordained you a prophet uh, to the nations, this conviction that this would have produced in Jeremiah's life, um, this assurance was absolutely vital. I don't care what God calls us to do. I don't care what He sanctifies us to do. We will, every single one of us, hit a place where we will doubt God's call upon our lives, or we will want to escape God's call upon our lives. It gets hard like that. It just does get hard. And one of the reasons it's hard is how in the world can you and I as Christians become more like Christ without going through hardship, without going through rejection, without going through being misunderstood, being slandered as he was by the religious leaders, and then ultimately even a physical persecution that was uh, meted out against him. But there's always that place always that place where if I am not sure of His ordaining of me, of His call upon my life, then I will not make it through that trial. And God kind of um, uh, brands that within our spirit when He calls us. So when that time comes, no matter how hard it is, we will look at it and say, if I don't know anything else in life, I know He has called me to do this, and if it is the death of me, I need to finish uh, this thing that He has called me to do. And so here, Jeremiah gets it, and he's got one tough ministry out in front of him. He's going to try and quit over and over again, and God lets him know, I have ordained you a prophet to the nation. And the, and the significance of being sure in our calling, whatever that is that He has called us uh, to do uh, and to be. Without it, ultimately, we'll get unsettled from whatever we're doing and get moved from it. So, this is, uh, you know, the call that God places upon His life in verses 4 and 5, and here's Jeremiah's response. Uh-uh. It's a little more eloquent than the New King James, but that's basically what he does here. And then said, I, that is Jeremiah, he said, ah, Lord God, and uh, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Now, he's not an eager prophet, is he? Uh, I'm, I'm almost always a little suspicious of men and women who are longing for prominence. They are longing for recognition, longing for position. I happen to like men and women that end up in significant 
places of significant influence within the kingdom of God when they've been reluctant at first to take that position. And we see it repeatedly in, in the Scriptures. And he is one of them. It's like, you've got a wrong number. Ah, Lord God, uh, here. And then he tries to evade God's calling on the basis of two things. First, he says, behold, I cannot speak. And so he tries to get out of this calling uh, on what he perceives to be a lack of natural talent. I don't have the natural talent to be able to do what it is that you are uh, calling me to do. And so this is the first reason he wants out of it. I can't do it. I'm not naturally, you know, gifted or uh, have special abilities this way uh, to do what you're calling me to do. This is continually the first consciousness that many of God's servants had when God called them in the Scriptures. Uh, Moses was that way. He said, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I think I've got a stutter here or something. All right, I'll send Aaron with you. Uh, Gideon wanted out. I'm the least of my family, least of my brethren, least of my tribe and all. But everybody, and, and the reason that this repeats itself so often within the Scriptures is it's the first thing you and I are going to feel. For the most of us, is that when God calls us to do something, we're going to say, there is no way I can do that. I can name six other people in my home fellowship that would be a better choice for what you are asking me to do. I don't have the natural talent to do what it is that you're calling me to do. But the interesting thing is, and uh, uh, you know, famously put, is the calling, God's callings are His enablings. And the calling is everything. The calling is everything. Whatever God has called us to do, no matter what talent we do or don't have, the calling is everything. Talent will die on the path of ministry. It will not take us to the end. Cleverness will die on that path. The only thing that gets us from here to here and that well done is the calling. The calling is always God's enabling, and it's important for us to know that. You may be sitting here tonight, and God has called you to teach a home fellowship or to do who knows what you know in your own heart. And the first thing out of your heart is, I can't speak, I can't, you know, do these kind of things, or I don't have this kind of, a, of ability, natural ability, and conscious of uh, the weakness of your flesh. But it is the calling that will be the assurance that you will be successful. The calling is everything. If you have it, you're going to be successful in what God's called you to. If you don't have it, nothing else uh, can replace it. And so we can never allow what we perceive to be a lack of natural talent uh, to be an excuse from obeying God and His uh, calling us uh, into, uh, His, uh, into His calling. Um, and so, the, and then his his second uh, attempt to get out of it. Behold, I cannot speak. And then he says, "For I am a youth." Now here he cites uh, his age. Nobody's going to listen to me. I'm too young. So Jeremiah probably they estimate he could be as young at this time as 16 years old. He could be as old as 25. Now in that Jewish culture. Um, you would hardly be listened to as a man. You would never be listened to as a woman. 
but you would never be listened to authoritatively as a man in any kind of a spiritual role until you're 30 years old. So he's way under that line. He knows the culture very, very well. And so he says, nobody's going to listen to me because of my age, for I am a youth. God, maybe you got this call upon my life. I already told you I don't have the natural talent to do this, but maybe you're just a little premature in coming to me. I'm too inexperienced. Give me a few years, more years of, of preparation. The problem is, is if God calls you to do something today, and you say, no, I'm not ready. I lack the, the age or the, you know, some kind of maturity that I think I need to have in order to do this. In two years, you're not going to feel any more uh, prepared for it. I feel no more prepared to do what I am doing tonight, 31 years later, than I did 31 years ago. I never know what's going to happen when I get behind this pulpit. I never know what's going to happen any given week in the office. I never know any of those things. And so every step of the way, there's ample reason for saying, I'm not ready to be able to, to do this or my age. Let me get a little bit more experience. But you'll never feel like that. When I turn to the Bible, woke some of you up. When I turn to the Bible and I study the Bible and I work hard to study the Bible, and, and I seek the Lord in prayer on a weekly basis because I know I'm going to be up behind a pulpit two times on a Sunday, and there's going to be X number of people in that room, and I'm going to be using up that much time collectively in people's lives. And people only have so much time in their life. And so, God, would you please give me something to say? And I never teach anything in this Bible except I have an absolute consciousness of the fact that I am merely scratching the surface of this book. There will, we will never feel qualified, never. And so God, is, as we're going to see in a moment, He's not going to accept this as an excuse. When God called me to pastor and to come over to Modesto and start to drive over from Napa on Sunday afternoons in order to teach an afternoon Bible study, and it began in a home. Uh, I was three and a half years old in the Lord. I don't know what you knew at three and a half years old in the Lord. I know what I knew. I knew enough to be a Christian, but I certainly don't feel I need, knew enough to be an elder, let alone a pastor. And so God sends me over to, do, to start to do this. All right, Lord, I want everybody to know your word. It's changed my life. I'm willing to start to do that. I remember on one Sunday, I'd drive over in the morning from Napa. I'd stop over at Bob's Big Boys. Uh, I think Dunkin' Donuts is there now. And, um, and I would go in there out of my Toyota to sell, go into the restroom, and I would put on my shirt and my tie to then go down to the Mary Kay Hall, which is where we met, in order to teach the Bible study. The, the one room with the bathroom in the front, and every time anyone went to the bathroom, they went to the front and went to the bathroom, and everybody's thinking, how long are they going to be in the bathroom? Nobody's thinking about anything that I'm saying up in front. One time I got to Bob's Big Boy, 
And when I was there, I'd sit in the car, open up my Bible, and I would review my notes. I don't have a great memory, so I use notes. And so I went to review my notes, opened up my Bible, no notes in the Bible. Napa is two hours in the other direction, and the church service is starting in 30 minutes in this direction over on McHenry. So what are you going to do? All right, Lord, hey, mm, here we go, make the best of it and all, and you can do miracles. I mean, you can just put words in my mouth. I've seen the people claim that and do all kinds of things. So I got up on that Sunday afternoon, and I'm in First Peter. I don't even know that there are themes to the books of the Bible. I didn't even know there was a theme to First Peter. I'm just teaching. I'm just trying to survive week by week. I'm working for the phone company and so forth. And I get up there, and it's like, all right, Lord, and I can't, you, you just, what's going on between a person and God at a moment like that? And so I got up there, and I tried to remember the sermon, and I told that group of people everything I knew from the Bible in three minutes. And I was completely done. Nothing else could come to my mind. Uh, they were all very concerned, I think, for my health as he had some kind of a stroke up there or something because I'm just like rambling. And then Abraham, you know, said to uh, King Saul, and, uh, and then King Herod came into the room, and he… And, and so all of this is going on, and finally I just know I'm absolutely busted in front of him. I said, I forgot my notes. I don't have any idea what I'm saying. Let's just close up in prayer. If you don't have a call, you quit at that particular point in time if you have any sense, but you're dumb enough to go try it again. But the, the age, the lack of experience, I think that sometimes within the Calvary Chapel family, and it's a wonderful family to be a part of, but that family is now uh, 30 to 50 years old. And even for us as Calvary Chapel Modesto, um, sometimes the longer a church family has existed, uh, the higher and the higher and the higher standard that can get in our minds, even if it's not in the minds of the pastors and the leadership, the idea that somehow I need a PhD or I need a PhD in theology to usher or to greet in the church, to take any kind of step and, and, and this thing gets elevated and elevated. And I always think about uh, Pastor Greg Laurie when he began the Calvary Chapel in Riverside, now called Harvest Christian Fellowship there. Nineteen years old, brand new Christian, starts that church in Riverside. And the point that I want to make, especially to those of you who are younger, you will never have enough experience or a certain age that you're going to hit and feel like, yeah, now I can, can do that. Always be overwhelmed by it. Take the step of faith that God is calling not only you, but all of us uh, within the room. And sometimes God calls us at a time to do something where He knows we're going to be way in over our head, but it's very, very vital. Uh, the timing is uh, so vital related to that. Um, when Karen and I started driving over here in order to start uh, this church. If she and I had stayed in Napa rather than moving to Modesto, 
A lot of difficult things were going to happen among the body of Christ in that city, and we might have gotten swallowed up by all of it. So the timing is all perfect. Everything is right. He lays out his excuses, and uh, the Lord said to him, do not say, I am a youth. That, God says, that doesn't uh, work with me. I'm not accepting that excuse. And then he says, for, and notice that word for, for is a reason word. So I'm not going to accept the excuse that you're just a youth. And here's the reason why. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. The issue isn't your age or your talent. It's my message and what I add to that message. And then he said further in verse 8, do not be afraid of their faces. And, of course, all of us experience fear in taking steps in God's call upon our lives. And Jeremiah, he's a young man. He's going to be He's going to experience it for sure. And so the Lord said, do not be afraid of their faces. And in other words, when, I, when you speak for me, you're going to look at their faces, and their faces are going to tell you one thing. We don't like what it is that you're saying. And so don't be afraid of their faces when you deliver the message that I give to you. For, here's the reason word. There'll be a lot of reason to fear in the natural, but here's why you don't need to. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. I will protect you. And then the Lord put forth his hand, and he touched my mouth, Jeremiah said, and now God is going to consecrate or sanctify or set Jeremiah's mouth aside for God's uh, purposes, the highest use of human speech, and certainly in a child of God, is for our speech, our mouths to be set aside unto God for His purposes, for the purposes of speaking about God, speaking to God, uh, praising God, delivering His message. That's a sanctified uh, mouth and capacity of speech. And the Lord said to him in this regard, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, and see, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. Jeremiah, it's going to look like they're all over you, but you are over all of the kingdoms and all of the nations of the world. And here's what you're going to do and for this purpose, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, and then to build and to plant. Now, this was the, the ministry of Jeremiah. The early part of his ministry would be to root out, pull down, destroy, throw down, and then to build and plant. I'd like to start with a build and plant, please, and get a little bit of a track record here and then go on to the other things, but God doesn't do it that way. What had happened in Judah is that Judah had become so morally and spiritually corrupted and rotten that the only thing God could do was tear it down to the foundation in order to then build something new and plant something new. Sometimes you'll see when you drive through different neighborhoods or um, maybe through like farmland and you'll see an abandoned farmhouse and you look at it and go, man, that's worth some money. I'd, I could rent that and live there. What in the world are the, is it? 
you know, going into decay like that. And sometimes you'll see buildings or sections of town where the decay and the rot has become so advanced within the building that it costs more to fix it than, than to just tear it down and begin again. Judah was in that place morally and spiritually. They were so far gone that the best thing to do was to tear them down spiritually, so to speak, and even as a nation, and then to build in the plant. But the reason the building and the planting is mentioned last here is that God never pulls down or roots out or destroys or throws down, no matter how upset he is with his people, without them within his mind, I am one day going to then build and plant. And that was his heart. He's got, he's really upset with Judah, but he knows ultimately it, this will allow him to do what he wants to do here, and that is to bless them and to prosper uh, them. But some judgment would have to occur uh, first. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. I think in the Old Testament it talks about instead of translating it an almond tree, the awakening tree. And the almond uh, tree is called the awakening tree in Israel because in Israel with that climate, it begins to flower and bud forth in January. And it's the earliest plant of its, its type to begin uh, to bud. And when it begins to bud and it begins to flower, it's an indication to the whole nation that a new season is beginning now, and the season of spring. And so God spoke to him, what do you see? I see a branch of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. What God was speaking through Jeremiah is there's going to be a change of season among the, uh, the people of Judah. We're going to go from where we are right now into a season of judgment. And then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? So God's giving him visions here, two visions. And he said, I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the north. Now, nobody in that culture really liked to see a boiling pot in warfare. If you were coming up to the gates of a city that you were sieging, the last thing you would want to see somebody produce above you would be a pot, a, a great uh, kettle of, uh, you know, iron that is filled either with boiling water or with boiling oil to be poured out upon you. It would be an alarming thing uh, uh, to see, judgment in a horrible way about to come down on my head. And so, Jeremiah sees this boiling pot, this scary kind of proposition. It's facing away from the north. And then the Lord gives him the interpretation of the vision. Out of the north calamity shall break forth all of the inhabitants of the land, uh, on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all of the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come each one and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And so what God is declaring is here in symbolism, as we're going to see in, in, in the coming weeks, is that this great 
great pot of boiling substance that's now being ready to be poured out down upon Judah. It represents uh, Babylon, who is going to invade Judah from the north. You say, why in the world would Babylon invade Judah from the north? Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just come straight, you know, east to west? Ah, there was a problem. It's called the Arabian Desert. And uh, if you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, that's a formidable, you know, desert to cross with an army. So the armies coming out of the east to invade Israel would always come along what was called the King's Highway or the Via Maris up through Damascus where the rivers flowed, come up to the north of Lebanon, and then invade from the north because there was a water supply and there was a food supply. And so God was declaring that this judgment, Babylon is going to come upon them from the north, and God gave the reasons why this was going to occur, verse 16. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. This judgment would be because of their wickedness, because they've forsaken me, the forsaking of God, and they've burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. So because of wickedness, because of the forsaking of God, because of idolatry, God was going to judge His people. And then He gives Jeremiah a final charge Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. Don't like it in the New King James. I don't know how many of you have an old King James, but in the old King James, every once in a while they had it a little bit better. In the old King James, it reads, Therefore, gird up your loins and, uh, uh, and arise. And, the, and, the word, and that was a very poetic imagery. Remember, they all wore robes in those days, right? And so to gird up your loins would be, you got this robe, and God is basically telling Jeremiah, all right, let's get up and let's get going. Gird up, the, gird up your loins. And what you would do is you'd take your robe from the back here, you'd bring it up this way, you'd tuck it up under your belt, and now instantly Bermuda shorts or culottes or whatever. So now you could move decisively, you could move forward without you know, worrying about stumbling over your robe. And it was God's way of saying, all right, let's go. Ready for work. Here we go. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them, Judah, all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces. Again, they're not going to like what you have to say, lest I dismay you before them. It's a good thing for every speaker or declarer of God's Word uh, to understand. God says, don't stop delivering my message just because of the look on their faces. Otherwise, I will uh, embarrass you or I will, uh, y- you know, uh, you know, Basically, yeah, I will embarrass you in front of them. And in other words, God's putting a fire kind of under Jeremiah. This isn't like baby talk. It's like you deliver the message or you're not going to have any fun. As bad as delivering a message to people they don't want to hear, um, if you don't, it's going to be even worse. And Jeremiah understood that. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, 
and against the people of the land. In other words, uh, Jeremiah, I am going to protect you. I'm going to make you undefeatable as a, as a wall of bronze in the ancient world uh, as you obey me. They will fight against you, rats. Uh, they'll say uncle as soon as they see no. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. And then here it is, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. And the promise of God's presence is always the guarantee of success. I don't care what the world looks like or what our situation looks like in our life immediately, even as we're sitting here tonight, uh, no matter what it looks like, when we go somewhere in the Scriptures and we find a passage in the Bible that speaks to our situation and what God promises He's going to do, then that's what's going to come to pass. He is with us, and He will be with us. It's the guarantee of success. That's why when Jesus gave the Great Commission to the disciples, He closed it with this very promise, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, the promise and the guarantee of success. So a tremendous chapter. Let me allow two things to kind of just be upon our hearts as we, you know, head out uh, into the night, you know, with the uh, time change and all of that, getting the kids. But maybe as it applies, uh, if it does apply to uh, any of us individually tonight, to allow it to kind of outlive the picking up of our children and the fellowship that's going to happen in this room and beyond, and to maybe give some thought to it tonight. And that is, if any of us in this room tonight are in a backslidden state where we are living in willful disobedience to God's Word, then come forward or just in the privacy of your own seat, repent of that and turn back to God tonight. It's the great theme of the book of Jeremiah. The second thing I want to leave you with is concerning God's call upon your life. There may be a significant portion of people in our room tonight that it is like the first time you've ever heard that God has a plan for your life. I thought this was just kind of getting saved and ending up in heaven someday. Yes, those are two. It's a great beginning and a great end, right? But there's something that happens in the middle. And for you to begin to say, God, I believe I'm in this world saved and walking with you for a reason. Would you reveal your plan for my life and help me to understand what it is and to begin to walk in that? If God has been speaking to you about something and all he's been getting is what he got from Jeremiah to begin with is just an absolute wall of excuses, the wall of sound that would have made Phil Spector embarrassed uh, for the feebleness of his uh, great invention, and all it is is excuses, then to turn away from that, there is no good excuse. God knows what he's getting when he calls you and the timing in which he calls you and I to do what he calls us to do is pivotal as well. Believe that he has a plan and that he has great things in mind for you and don't talk yourself out of it. If you don't know where to start, you say, I don't know where to start, 
just go out into that bulletin board in the fellowship hall and look at that big, huge list of things that talk about different areas of ministry within the church and just start serving somewhere while you're learning what God's call is uh, fully upon your life. If you sit here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we're going to be up in front immediately after this service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin your personal relationship with God tonight by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't leave tonight unsaved. Let's stand together, and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for Jeremiah, and thank you on behalf of so many of us for the friend that he has become to us in encouragement through the years, and thank you, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts for being able to be here tonight and to introduce Jeremiah to a whole new group of people. And I pray and we pray concerning the lessons of repentance and walking with you and calling and gifting and not trying to uh, squirm out, Lord, because of our own sense of inadequacy and natural talent or age or whatever is considered vital, not only by the culture around us but even within Christian culture, that all of that would be just completely wiped out by the sword of your Spirit tonight and that people would just be left in the simplicity of what this really is all about, and that is just them and you, Lord, and your plan for their life and for my life as well. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.